Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, I have a bunch of interesting words we use to talk about walking and a follow-up to last week's episode about prepositions, talking about when you should stress prepositions and whether you should say a car almost ran over me or a car almost ran me over. But first, this week, I have two, eek, two corrections. Last week, we said the Quote Investigator site is run by Fred Shapiro, but it is actually run by Garson O'Toole, who is also the author of the book Hemingway Didn't Say That, The Truth Behind Familiar Quotations. But we didn't hallucinate Fred Shapiro. He also writes about quotations and has a book coming out titled The New Yale Book of Quotations. We apologize for mixing up the works of two excellent and prolific quotation researchers, Garson O'Toole of the Quote Investigator website and Fred Shapiro of Yale Law School. And then, two weeks ago, in a segment about the word subpar, we messed up golf statistics. We talked about Tiger Woods and Dustin Johnson's scores as being 13 and 20 under par for one round when they were really that much under par for the whole tournament. Still impressive, but not the same. This week, we are celebrating walking at Quick and Dirty Tips, my podcast network, because we know a lot of you listen to podcasts while you go for walks. But that got me wondering, when you walk, do you amble, meander, shuffle, trundle? I definitely trundle. I walk almost every day, and when it's time, my husband always asks, are you ready to trundle? And sometimes when he's being really funny, he will say, get ready to trundle, as if we're heading to something as exciting as a wrestling match. Trundle the verb comes from trundle the noun, which first appeared in the year 1564 to describe a trundle bed, because it referred to small wheels or rollers, and a trundle bed is a bed on rollers that you can move around, often rolling it underneath another bed for storage and pulling it out when you need it. The walking meaning of the word didn't appear until more than a hundred years later in 1680. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, one meaning is to walk with a rolling gait. So that's how we get from physical wheels or rollers to a way of walking. And let's talk about walk for a minute. Like many words for very basic things we do, the verb walk is old. The first written example of walk, to mean move about on foot, goes back to about 1200, but the OED speculates that it had that meaning earlier, and it was just used colloquially but wasn't written down. But it did have other meanings that were written down earlier. Going all the way back to Old English, written examples of to walk meant to roll, to turn over, to toss something, and to wrap around something. Ambling on in our survey, amble popped up in the 1300s and first referred to something a horse did. It wasn't until 1576 that it came to refer to people who moved in a smooth, steady way at a moderate speed, suggestive of how a horse moves. Shuffle appeared in 1598, and according to the OED, its first use was to describe a way of walking. The origin of shuffle is unclear, but multiple sources say it could come from the German word schufflin, meaning to walk clumsily or with dragging feet, or it could be the frequentative form of the verb to shove. 
So I had to look up what frequentative means. That's a verb form that indicates repetition. So if you're shuffling, I guess the idea is that you're making the motion of a series of little shoves. Other frequentatives are prickle, as in you get a prickle on the back of your neck instead of just one prick, sniffle, which is a series of sniffs, and sparkle, which is more than just one spark. Frequentatives often end with L-E, like sparkle, sniffle, and prickle, but not always. Meander is a relative newcomer, coming to mean to wander aimlessly in 1831, when it was used in a collection of folklore called Legends and Stories of Ireland, in a line in which a piper named Paddy is described as meandering along through the fields. The word itself, though, goes back to the name of a Greek winding river, Meandros. According to Edom Online, the Greeks used the name of the river figuratively for winding patterns. Rome is an interesting word. The origin is ultimately uncertain, but the OED speculates that one possibility is it comes from the name of the city Rome, even though they're spelled differently. Lots of Romance languages have a word similar to Rome that means pilgrim. Italian has Romeo, for example, and Old French has Romi, spelled R-O-M-I. And at least in post-classical Latin, that word meant a pilgrim on the way to the city of Rome. So it could be that the verb to Rome, before it entered English, originally came from the idea of wandering around on your way to Rome, the city, although it doesn't look like it was specifically used in that way in English, where it first appeared in the 1300s to simply mean wander around. Rome is also interesting because it might be the source of ramble, which began to mean wandering in a free, unrestrained way in 1615. Again, the origin of ramble is ultimately unknown, but Edam Online says it could be the frequentative form of the verb to roam. There's that frequentative again. Finally, at the end of a long walk, you might shamble, walk awkwardly or unsteadily. Shamble is interesting because it comes from the noun shambles, as in this room is a shambles. A shamble was originally a stool or a table, and then it came to describe a table specifically for selling meat. Then the plural shambles came to mean any place where meat was sold, and then even later it could describe a slaughterhouse. So you can see then how in the 1920s, first in the United States, shambles, a place of blood and carnage and slaughter, came to take on the figurative meaning of a messy disaster. The first citation in the OED from the book Microbe Hunters reads, Once more, his laboratory became a shambles of cluttered flasks and hurrying assistants. But still, how did we get from there to shamble being a way you could walk? Well, it goes back to that original stool or table meaning. Around the time shamble started being used to describe a place of carnage or slaughter, it also started being used as an adjective with a kind of association with legs. Shamble-legged was first used as an adjective in 1607 to describe someone with awkward or ill-shaped legs. The first citation in the OED reads, A lean fellow with sunk eyes and shamble legs. And then in 1699, it showed up again in a dictionary of jargon and slang, shamble-legged, defined as one that goes wide and shuffles his feet about. 
The OED speculates that sense goes back to the table meaning, from the sloping legs of a table, like we'd see in a sawhorse today. Or maybe to the stool meaning, because of the way your legs sit awkwardly when you straddle a bench. And along the same lines, Edam Online points out that the French word for being bow-legged is actually translated as bench-legged. So shamble started as a word that meant a stool or a table, and then took at least two paths, one through slaughterhouses to mean a disaster, and another through awkward legs to mean to walk awkwardly or unsteadily. I hope you enjoyed this meandering journey through walking words and that I can accompany you through many more walks while you listen to the podcast. This next segment is by Neil Whitman. In our last episode, we talked about the difference between prepositions and particles in order to discuss the famous grammar punchline, this is the kind of pedantic nonsense up with which I will not put. Well, today we're going to get into two other interesting properties of particles. One phenomenon will be of interest to people who are learning English as a non-native language. And for native English speakers, it's probably something you haven't noticed before. Listen to these two sentences. In the first one, on is a particle. And in the second, on is a preposition. Aardvark slept on. Aardvark slept on the couch. Did you notice that in aardvark slept on, the particle on was stressed? And in the sentence aardvark slept on the couch, the preposition on wasn't stressed. Now, if we wanted to, we could stress the preposition if we were saying something like aardvark slept on the couch, not under it, but usually we don't. On the other hand, if we don't stress the on in aardvark slept on, the sentence crashes. Here's what it sounds like. Aardvark slept on. When I read that sentence, I find myself asking, slept on what? Finish the sentence. Or I imagine that the words are part of a longer sentence I didn't catch because the speaker was on mute at first. The whole sentence might be something like, this is the couch that Aardvark slept on. That sentence is okay, even though on isn't stressed, because it's a preposition. If you're learning English and haven't learned the distinction between prepositions and particles, it might seem totally random that aardvark slept on causes English-speaking listeners to scratch their heads. Well, aardvark slept on the couch is fine. It can be even more frustrating if you've learned that in English, prepositions aren't stressed and have spent time and energy practicing not stressing them, only to have people misunderstand you when you say, come in, sit down instead of come in, sit down. The other phenomenon shows how the grammar of a language can change without you even noticing it. In our last episode, we talked about how there are some cases where it's especially tricky to identify a word as a particle or preposition. Think about this sentence. Tom Petty is running down the street. Is down the street a prepositional phrase? Or is down a particle and the street a direct object of run? Well, the answer is it's a prepositional phrase. We can tell because we can replace the street with a pronoun and the sentence is still grammatical. Tom Petty is running down it. The pronoun it is the object of down and the two words together form a prepositional phrase. Now consider this sentence. Tom Petty is running down a dream. Is down a dream a prepositional phrase, or is down a particle and a dream a direct object of run? 
Well, this time, down is a particle. We know that because if we try to replace a dream with a pronoun, we have to put it before the word down instead of after, like this. Tom Petty is running it down. If we try to keep it after the down, the sentence fails. Tom Petty is running down it. The only way for that to be grammatical would be for it to mean that Tom Petty is actually running on top of a dream as if it were a road. So that example is pretty straightforward. Now let's think about the phrasal verb run over, as in the driver ran over the unfortunate creature. If we replace the unfortunate creature with the pronoun it, how would we say the sentence? Would it be the driver ran over it or the driver ran it over? Well, a hundred years ago, the answer would definitely have been the driver ran over it. But these days, it's more likely to be the driver ran it over. I searched the corpus of historical American English for examples of the verb run, followed by over and then a pronoun, as in ran over me. They peaked in the decade between 1890 and 1900, with 40 examples in the corpus. Next, I searched for examples of the verb run, followed by a pronoun, and then over, as in ran me over. In 1890 and 1900, those examples were in the single digits. They peaked a hundred years later in the 1990s with 44 examples, and they remained in the 30s for the first two decades of the 21st century. In other words, in the 19th century and most of the 20th century, the over in the phrasal verb run over was a preposition, but these days it's used as a particle about twice as often as it's used as a preposition. If you're writing a book set a hundred years ago, this is one tiny tweak you can make to your language to make your dialogue more authentic. An era-appropriate character would be more likely to say, that car almost ran over me, than that car almost ran me over. So to sum up, prepositions don't have to be stressed, but particles do. This is true even when a preposition gets stranded at the end of a sentence, as in, what did Aardvark sleep on? The verb sleep gets stressed, but the preposition on doesn't. But in the sentence, Fenster partied on, the particle on does get stressed. I'll leave you with this rule in the form of a riddle. Why didn't the preposition get stressed when it got stranded at the end of a sentence? Because it wasn't particular. That segment was by Neil Whitman, Ph.D., an independent writer and consultant specializing in language and grammar and a member of the Reynoldsburg, Ohio, school board. You can find him at literalminded.wordpress.com. Finally, I have an especially interesting familect story from Brooke. Hi, my name is Brooke, and my familect is almost entirely pronunciation and grammar-based. We'll treat count nouns as mass nouns and vice versa, and we'll deliberately mispronounce words as a sign of affection. To be cute, I guess. I think it originated from internet slang like puppers and doggos. We've got carumps for carrots, burb or borb for bird, cheebs for cheese, chimkin for chicken, bananas for bananas, etc. I think those are all kind of standard on the internet. But not every cute mispronunciation is standardized for us. In the last week, we've said vungalables for vegetables, garlumps, lurlumps, and gurlumps for garlic, musklums for mussels, frungibles for refrigeratables, and the shows for a shower. 
I don't know if anyone else does that, but I think it's pretty unique for us and we love it. And so I figured I'd share. Thanks. Thanks, Brooke. This one really intrigued me because it's not so much a family act as an entire private language. Plus, the way you don't stick with just one word for each thing, but instead change it up was really interesting. I actually ran it by Neil Whitman to see if he had any thoughts, since he's a linguist. And he noticed a few vague patterns, like if a vowel is changed, it tends to involve the letter R. But it really does seem to be something that's quite unusual. It's not like this is something linguists know about, and he could tell me, oh yeah, this family is doing this thing we call X. So thanks for sharing. It's really interesting, and I hope you continue to have fun with it. If you want to call in with your family word story, you can leave a voicemail at 833214-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. And be sure you call from somewhere quiet. Background noise and bad connections are the biggest reason I can't use people's calls. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my producer, Nathan Sams. And that's all. Thanks for listening. <laughs>